All right, so we are continuing our series through uh, why we believe what we believe about the church. Last week we talked about baptism and uh, the many different aspects of baptism and the doctrine we believe as opposed to sort of what the rest of the world believes out there. Um, this week we are going to be in Luke chapter 6 to get started this morning. So we started with John the Baptist, and we talked about how he sort of gathered the materials necessary for the Lord to start the first church. We've talked about the transition period, how you still have some Old Testament things in the gospel period, and you also have some church age stuff that are existing at sort of the same time. So it's kind of a transitional phase where the old system is being uh, taken down and the new system is being set up. And so you do have things like uh, observing the Passover on the same night that they observe the Lord's Supper, uh, different things like that, which is why some people get confused and they think that baptism is like an Old Testament Hebrew washing, and it's not. Uh, so that's what we talked about up to this point last week, uh, talking about baptism. This week we're on to uh, ordaining of the 12 original and foundational apostles. So in Luke chapter 6, we're going to start reading in verse 12. So up to this point, anybody who has uh, been saved and followed Jesus, they are a part of the they're part of the membership of the first church. All right, so that's not just the 12. That's anybody who chose to follow Jesus. All right, so what we see now is the Lord setting 12 special people aside as foundational apostles. It says in verse 12, It came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Can you imagine praying for eight hours or six hours as it might have been? Praying that long. That That is a... That is an amazing level of dedication that, of course, the Lord would have. And you can only imagine the level of communion that Jesus would have with God the Father. Uh, but prayer was such an intricate part of the Lord's life here on earth. And it's something he emphasized so much. It's so important. And it's something that we don't emphasize enough in our lives. The, the importance of our prayers to God. Um, but he continued all night in prayer to God, and when it was day, he called unto him his disciples. And of them he chose twelve, whom also he named apostles. Now, real quick, before you keep reading, can anybody without looking name the twelve apostles? Can anybody name six of the twelve apostles? No. Mark was not an apostle. Luke was not an apostle. Barnabas? Uh, yeah. Uh, wait, not Barnabas. It's another bar name, but it's not that one. John, you said? Peter. James. James, yeah. Andrew. 
Yeah, Judas. Not Paul. Paul was not one of the original 12. Am I saying that right? It's no. I think, and I'll give you this one. I think you're uh, thinking of Bartholomew. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Like it's in there. It's Bartholomew. And I'll, <laughs> yeah. There was also, okay, so we'll, we'll read them now. Uh, verse 14 says, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, we remember doubting Thomas. Thomas, Thomas. Yeah. Uh, James, the son of Alphaeus. So there was what they called James the more and James the less. Right? James, there was one James that was um, a little more outspoken than the other one. So there was James the more and James the less. Right? Um, and Simon called Zelotes. And Judas, the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which was also the traitor. So there were two different Judases. There was Judas of Iscariot, but there was also um, Judas, the brother of James, who was not a traitor. Uh, so there was a couple of those names that double. You said James, and I kind of hesitated because I was like, yes, but you just named two of them because you said James. And so a lot of these you don't know because what we do is we associate names with stories, right? We know Peter. Peter's got a lot of stories. We know the, the, the favorite three, right? We know Peter, James, and John, uh, sometimes referred to as the inner circle of apostles because they have the most stories about them, Peter and James and John. James has his own book. Peter's got two books. John's got several books. The Gospel according to John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation, all written by John. Um, the, uh, some of the other ones we know there are stories about, but not a whole lot, like Doubting Thomas we mentioned before. Um, um, who was it? The other two fishing with uh, Peter and Andrew was, uh, I think it was James and John. And so we know their stories sort of alongside that. We know Matthew and his story being a tax collector and so forth. Uh, but a lot of these other ones we don't know because there's no story associating them with the Bible. The only reason we know their names is because they were listed in places like this, in uh, Luke chapter 6 or in Acts chapter 1 when they're listing the other apostles about replacing Judas Iscariot. And so uh, a lot of these are more background apostles. Not that they were less important, but that they were less famous they were less widely known to the world. Um, that doesn't mean that the contributions they made to Christianity in the first century were less important. You know, the part you play in God's plan may not be a huge, uh, famous, successful, wealthy lifestyle, but it doesn't make what you do any less important than what anybody else does. Uh, our existence is just as significant as anybody else's. What I do for this church is not any more important than what anybody else does for this church. Right? I may be the one to stand up here and speak and so forth, but somebody's got to set the chairs out. Right? Somebody's got to vacuum the floor. Somebody's got to make the coffee in the morning, especially for our crew. We need our coffee. 
Uh, if you guys want to be half awake at all, somebody's got to get in there and make that coffee, right? Somebody's got to go get the donuts, you know, set the songbooks out. Uh, Josh sitting there running the, the, the service. You don't see Josh a whole lot. He's behind the camera, right? But just because I'm the one standing up here speaking doesn't mean that what I do is more important than what anybody else does. Uh, each of these apostles served in their own significance. Uh, verse 17 says, And he came down with them. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, he came down with them and stood in the plain and the company of his disciples and a great multitude of people out of all Judea and Jerusalem and from the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon, which came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. So now we have the 12 disciples have been chosen. These 12 are the ones that Jesus called out from among the rest of the crowd to be the leaders of the church in the first century. Um, so the original apostles were by this time truly a New Testament church. Uh, even if the original larger group of disciples from which they were chosen were not, although uh, many believe they were. I myself believe they were. They were all members. Uh, I equate it to uh, sort of like deacons. Right? In our church, as of yet, we don't have any deacons yet. We haven't reached the need for deacons yet in our history and our size and so forth. We will at some point, I'm sure. But for right now, we don't have deacons per se. In the Bible, there are two biblical uh, authorities in the church. There's the pastor and there are the deacons. Uh, the office of a youth pastor you'll not find in the Bible. Uh, there are a couple of phrases you can kind of say uh, a, a music director, a music leader might be in there. The Bible talks about psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and the importance and the significance of music in the church. Though it doesn't expressly mention the office of somebody whose job it is to head that thing up. right? So the only positions of authority you find in the church in the Bible are the pastor, and the, the deacons. And that's it. So I equate these uh, disciples, who will be one day apostles, uh, to like the office of a deacon where Christ is the pastor. Right? In these early years where they're still learning what it is to be a Christian, to follow Christ, and what a church really is, uh, they're still learning. So they're, they're still just the deacons learning under Jesus. And one day when Jesus ascends up into heaven, they're authority will ascend beyond even that of the pastor as apostles. Uh, but for right now, this is what they are. Uh, they themselves were called out, were called, uh, I'm sorry, were a called out assembly of born again, spiritually, I'm sorry, scripturally baptized followers of Jesus Christ, their pastor. They weren't baptized, of course, by Jesus Christ. Who were they baptized by? Somebody tell me. John the Baptist. They were committed to and authorized to carry out his will, propagate his teaching, and to baptize. So this is where we get the concept of we accept somebody else's membership from, from another church if they've been baptized by, by immersion like we believe. If they've been baptized properly, then we accept their baptism from any other church. right? And that is because... To join Jesus' church, Jesus didn't do any baptizing. It was John the Baptist, and then they joined the Church of Jesus Christ. 
The apostles were referred to in 1 Corinthians 12.28 as being set in the first church. And you can't set something into something that doesn't exist. Right? So a lot of people that say that the church started in Acts 2, it didn't exist before then. I can understand why they might think that, but biblically it can't be true. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12.28, we just mentioned, uh, uses the phrase that they were set in the church. And uh, again, if they were set in this thing, it must have existed while they were set into it. Uh, also, even though this means uh, first in rank of the gifts, they were set. Uh, they were so set off as such, they were not functioning as such in the days of the four gospel accounts, which is what I said earlier about they're more like deacons than they are apostles at this point in the gospels. Uh, so the initial group of disciples referred to in Luke chapter 6 Uh, were more than likely considered um, the church prior to this time. So they were already considered church members, and now they're just more uh, authority in the church now that Jesus has called them out. Uh, so this is the only time there was a separate setting of the twelve from the rest of the followers of Christ. Up until this point, it was just the followers. They follow Jesus and so forth. Uh, so now let's take a look at Matthew chapter 10. And in Matthew 10, we're going to see Jesus giving the 12 even greater authority. In Matthew 10, it says, When he had called unto him his 12 disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Uh, so, here we see the authority given to them in even greater power. Now, remember, the Gospels is what we call a transitional phase, which means, excuse me, which means that you have a New Testament system, a new, a new church age emerging for the first time in the world's history. So nobody knows what this means or what's going to happen or, or what would be normal. So we've got to establish ourselves. Does anybody know why Jesus performed miracles in the Gospels? To spread the word. Not really. That's it's close, but that's not really. It was to um, prove to Israel, to the Jews, that he was their Messiah. Right? Uh, in Acts chapter 2, the sermon that Peter preaches, he talks about uh, many infallible proofs. Right? And so that, that phrase, many infallible proofs, is extremely important because it is the miracles that Jesus performed. Right? So that was proof that he was the Messiah. And in the same way, the, the disciples were given special power to go out and do what Jesus was doing uh, so that they could sort of define the New Testament church age. It was for that transition. It's not a permanent thing. Um, it's a bit like uh, if, you, if you follow like presidential politics at all, you know when the next president is voted in, they're not immediately the president, are they? Not until the inauguration. Right? Until he stands up, puts his hand on that Bible, he takes his oath as president of the United States, he is not the president of the United States. The person before him still is. 
So what do they call him before he's taken that oath at the inauguration? They call him the president-elect. Right. So it's a transitional position. That is what these 12 were. They were a transitional position from the time where Jesus ascended up into heaven and the time that we had a completed Bible. That was the purpose of the 12, is to fill that transition. Right? So that is why we have miracles, even done by the apostles and the disciples, because they had to establish themselves as the authority before the Bible was finished. In the same way that Jesus established himself. So that was important for people to know that they were uh, apostles, that they were an authority, and they did this by their miracles. And you remember, as they're traveling around performing these miracles, there were some that were trying to cash in on them. Remember some of those stories in the book of Acts? I've preached them a few times. Uh, Simon the Magician, you remember that one? He came along and he was trying to perform the miracles that the apostles were performing and didn't work out for him, and he actually wound up getting saved and so forth. And in his ignorance as a new young Christian, he goes to, I think it was Peter, I don't really remember, I'd have to reread the story, and asks how much it would cost him to be able to uh, get this power for himself. His plan was to use it uh, to help people for a price. I'll heal your daughter for like, you know, $20. That was his plan. And he was rebuked and scolded harshly for that because that's, that's not what Christ is about. Uh, but that was the purpose of their miracles. It wasn't for everybody. It wasn't for anybody. It's not for all ages. It was just to establish their authority. We have a completed Bible now, so we don't need apostles anymore. We follow this. This is the authority. This, this book, this Bible, holds authority for this church higher than me. Right, So I'm the pastor of this church, and according to our church constitution and bylaws, all major decisions made for this church are done by me. Right, I am the leader of this church. But above me is this Bible. This holds authority higher than me. And that is why we have no need for an apostolic authority. We have a completed Bible. So we don't need that anymore, therefore we don't need to prove... Uh, ourselves anymore. So the, the concept of somebody having always the spiritual gift of healing, uh, that's not a thing. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't perform miracles anymore, because he does. But he doesn't do it in such a way where I'm the one walking around in hospital beds, touching people and healing them. Right? If people are going to be healed, God's going to do that. We can pray and ask God to do these things, but at the end of the day, he's the one that's going to do it. And the reason for that is the reason it works different today than then is because I don't need to prove myself as pastor, right? I don't do that by healing people and so forth. I just do that by standing up and preaching the word. So their authority is given here, and they're listed again uh, in verse 2. The name of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Uh, and every time I read those four names that come first, I think of the chosen. A TV show? Two. And it's, yeah. And it, it sort of fills in the holes of things we don't know about in the Bible with what they think happened. May or may not have actually happened that way, but it certainly colors it for me. Um, and it just really, it, I don't know, it really helps me see their personality. 
It's very biblical, their personality in that, and it's so funny. Uh, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the publican, James the son of Alphaeus, and Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them. And you notice some of the names are different. That is because Jesus changes people's names. You remember that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Peter's name wasn't Peter. Right, his name was Simon. You know, uh, there are several names like that that Jesus changed. Thou shalt be called, and he changes their names. Um, so uh, we have further authority uh, for the 12 given here. Uh, and, and as he's giving them this authority, he he's giving them instruction as to go out into the world. He says in verse 5, These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them. So as he's sending them out into the city to perform these miracles to establish their, uh, their discipleship, their apostleship, he says, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not. Now, Gentiles are just anybody who's not a Jew. And Samaritans were considered half-Jew, half-Gentile. They were considered mixed-breed people. And Jesus is saying, don't go to those people. Now, that might seem strange to you. It might seem even racist to you, but it's not. For Jesus to say that the gospel is only for this group of people, that's not what he's saying. right? It's for that specific time. You read through the book of Romans, how many times you count for yourself will you read the phrase to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, or to the Jew first and also to the Greek? Many, many times. Why is that? Because of Abraham. been reading through my own personal uh, Bible listening this week, Bible reading this week about the story of Abraham and his relationship with God. And and you can see why God put up with so much from the Israelites. I mean, he put up with a lot. They were a bunch of whining, complaining little babies. Oh, my gosh. To a certain degree, there were a couple of times where God said, Moses, come here. I'm just going to kill them all. We're just going to start off, start over with your family. More than once, God said that. These people were frustrating people. And Moses, you know, talking God off of a ledge there. Is very, I can't quite wrap my brain around that. Where Moses is going to God and saying, listen, God, let's just take a breath and calm down. Let's not wipe out the entire line. What would the Gentiles think? You know, what would they say about it? And it's just a funny sort of commentary to me there that Moses is talking God out of killing all of Israel. But on more than one occasion, and that's all because of Abraham. As he goes back and he looks at Abraham and how faithful Abraham was to respect him as God, but also to love him as a friend. And he had, Abraham had, I believe, just such a perfect balance of those two things. God so appreciated that about him because the Bible tells us God is no respecter of persons. Right? So Abraham had an attitude toward God unlike anybody else. And God appreciated that and blessed him and his people after him. So because they were God's people first, God chose Israel. And by the way, God's not done with Israel. Right? They've been temporarily set aside because they rejected Jesus. But they get the gospel first. And that's why. 
because they're God's chosen people, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, for people who say it shouldn't be that way. It should be the whole world all at once. Hey, we're lucky we got the gospel, right? I mean, you think about it, your great, 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 great grandparents were worshiping moon gods, you know? They were worshiping goat gods, you know? I mean, there were some, there's some really ridiculous gods out there. They're all ridiculous, but why would you, if you're going to make a god, why make one after a goat? That's a poor animal to choose. You got lions and all kinds of cool animals. You picked a goat. If you're going to try to outdo God, the goat is not the one to go with. But, uh, yeah, so we see he tells them, go to the, the Jews first. Go to God's people first, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is a big, this is a big phrase. Don't let that phrase pass you over because you've read it a thousand times in church. They have been waiting for this moment for a very long time. Let me put it in perspective for you. How long have Christians been waiting for the return of Jesus, for the rapture, as we call it? How many years have we been waiting for that? Somewhere around 2,000 years. Do you know how long the Old Testament world was waiting for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem? Somewhere six, eight thousand years. Depending on how old you believe the earth is, some people think 10,000 years, some people think 12,000 years. It depends on a couple of things. Uh, but yeah, somewhere around that six to eight thousand years. That is three, four times the amount of time that we have been waiting for the rapture. That's how long they were waiting for Jesus to be born, for the Messiah to reveal himself. And now they're walking around all over Israel to these people that have been to temple, that have been to the synagogue, and know well enough to know who the Messiah is and why they should be excited about this. Those are the people they're starting with. Because when you go to the Gentiles, you have to reinvent the whole wheel. Right? You have to, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What's heaven? What is that? I've never heard of that before. Is that a play? Like, did somebody start a new country? I don't. What is going on? And they said, No, 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 no. That's God. Who's God? What is God? Which God? Which one are you talking about? We've got fourteen of them over there. Which one of them is here now? They're like, No, 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 no. This is the God that created the earth. You got to start in Genesis one. You got to in the beginning. Got you. Got to go all the way down. And then there was this guy named Abraham. And you got to go all the way down. There was this guy named David. You got to go all the way to explain everything to him. And then you get to Jesus, right? So we start with Israel. These people who know how big a deal it is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It's now. It's happening. The Messiah showed up. He's here. It would be like people walking around telling us that Jesus is rapturing people. It'd be like somebody knocking on our door, us opening the door, and then being like, look. And we go outside and look, and we see like things popping up in the sky like bottle rockets all over the place. We see two really bright lights in the sky, one of them being Christ, one of them being the archangel, a lesser light, but one that is glowing with the radiance of God because he spends so much time around God. You can see that in the, the New Testament, in the, the resurrection. 
the angel that shows up, it says he was shining. Uh, that is as big a deal as what's going on right here when they say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He tells them to heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received, freely give. Now that goes right along with what Simon the Magician was doing that we were talking about. And it goes against what some churches are doing today. On our Facebook page, we've grown to the point where we've received certain specific monetization status. Now, for those of you who don't know, what that means is there are certain ways, certain special events I could set up that would make the church money. One of those is that I could sell online tickets to a special event. And there are a lot of churches that do this. There are churches that do it physically. Uh, I knew of a church, I won't say which one, but of a church, as a, as a fairly large church, independent Baptist church, pastored by a guy I've known for, I would say, a little while now. And they decided to have a concert in their church. That's fine. That's great. Fantastic. But it was a church service, and they were selling tickets to it. Now, if you want to pay somebody for coming to the church, I've got no problem with that. You want to, like, a, as a professional Christian band or, or group of singers or so forth that's coming to put on a special service and the church wants to pay them, I see no problem with that. That's fine. That's terrific. That's great. But for you to sell tickets to church, that goes against what we just read. Jesus said, freely ye have received, freely give. Worshiping Jesus should not cost anything. Right? And I could set up a special online event or we, I don't know, we could do anything on there. We could have a special music uh, thing. I could be on there playing the nose flute. I mean, I could be anything, you know? We could have a special cooking class on there, you know, or, or musical uh, lessons on there or whatever, and you had to pay a ticket to come watch it online. But I'm not going to do that. Because freely ye have received, freely give. Right? It shouldn't cost you anything to learn about the Lord. If I ever have a, a sermon set on CD or a flash drive or however we choose to do it in the future, it's not going to cost anybody anything except for the church to have them made. Because freely ye have received, freely give. They were sent out to cast out these devils and perform these miracles for free to help people. Because that's what churches are supposed to do, to help people. Help people escape hell with the gospel. Help people find hope and peace and joy. Help people who are struggling. Remember what Jesus told the rich young ruler. He said, all these things have I done for my youth. I've kept all the commandments. I'm a good person. And Jesus says, that's great. That's fantastic. Super. You've got one thing you've got to do, and you'll be good. I want you to sell all of your possessions and give half of that money to the poor. Now, folks, we think about that for a second. We're talking about a very wealthy man. So if he sold his house, he sold all his possessions, and he kept even half of that for himself, he would at least still be as wealthy as everybody else. We're talking about a wealthy man. We're not talking about a commoner. He could give half that money to the poor and still live a very happy, very peaceful life. Jesus said, you do that and you'll be good. If the Bible says he did, he went away sorrowful. He wouldn't do it. He wouldn't give that money to the poor. He kept it for himself. 
And we look at that and we blame him for that, but how many of us would be willing to do the same? How many of us, if we had an extremely successful business somewhere, we had a two, three-story house, we had two or three Ferraris in the garage, you know, we were doing really nice, really well for ourselves, how many of us would be willing to sell everything we have, divide that into 50%, give it to a soup kitchen, or give it to some charity that helps poor people, and then take the rest of that half of that money and then go buy a smaller house and a, a regular car and live normally after we had become so successful. That's what he was asking this poor man, to, or this rich man to do. He went away sorrowful. But that's what Jesus wants us to learn about. Freely ye have received, freely give. You know why, and I'm, I'm going to say this this one time, I don't usually get into this sort of a thing, but um, it's Sunday school, so we dive a little deeper here. But that's why our economy is in such a mess. Because everybody's grabbing as much of the pie for themselves as they can. If we could get back to the charity and generosity of Jesus, we'd be good. Helping one another out, instead of going on TikTok to find out how you can scam those, uh, those coin-operated buggy things that they have at certain stores and they'll like 3D print a thing that's like a coin they can stick in there and pull back out so they can get a cart without having to actually pay for it. I know, right? It's, that is the greed of the American world nowadays. It's, it's become quite crazy. But we, as Christians, should live differently. Because freely ye have received, freely give. He says, provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses, nor script for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves. He says, don't take a lot of money with you. You just take what you need to survive. He says, don't take extra clothing. You just go with the clothes that are on your back. You don't even take a change of clothes. For the workman is worthy of his meat. So what it's saying there is if you need something, you go out and earn the money and buy it and then just be content with that. He's telling them to go out and work not so they can get rich or get wealthy, but if they have need. They go out, they perform some labor. Uh, the Apostle Paul used to make tents and sell them. And uh, that was something he did everywhere he went. He knew how to make tents and he knew how to sell them. And that's what he did when he needed money. He needed food. He needed shelter, clothing, whatever he needed. He'd go out and sell a few tents, get the money, and then go back to preaching the gospel. This is the way it's meant to, this is the way the Christian is meant to, to live. Right? By giving as much as you can afford to. Occurring wealth. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing inherently sinful about it. But there is a level of wealth, I feel like, that is against what Christ meant for us to have. Some of these one percenters out there, some of these people that have way more money than they really should, they should get better about giving more of it away. Uh, he says, when you come into a house, salute it. And if the house be worthy, let your peace Come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. Right? So this is how we ought to conduct ourselves as well. 
The Bible says when you go into a home, you meet somebody or you go into a new place or so forth, something like that, and you're treated respectfully, you're treated well. It's a place worthy of you to say, Lord, bless this place. You to speak respectfully and kindly in, in match, then that's great. But if it's a place that doesn't treat you nice, the people are rude, the place is a, a place that hasn't been respectful to you at all, you don't go in there la tongue-lashing people. You don't go in there wagging your finger at people. You let your peace return to you. Right? You keep it to yourself. And you leave that place. Because there is... A certain way Christians should behave themselves. Folks, can we stop arguing with people on the internet about the Bible? Can we stop doing that? Because of course they don't know what they're talking about. Or they would be here doing this behind a pulpit like me. Not online wearing like a Led Zeppelin t-shirt with a beard that goes down to their belly button. Looks like they haven't washed it in three days talking about how this pastor in this church was wrong for this on TikTok behind like a couch or something. Right? That's not usually the setting for really authoritative Bible studies. Not that there's anything wrong with those guys. God bless them, more power to them. But usually if you're looking for solid Bible study, you're going to look for a church. Right? Let's, let's stop getting, my point is, let's stop getting angry at those people and then like blasting them on the comment section. That's doing nobody any good. Also, don't get in arguments with people just out in the world. I can't tell you how many Christians I've heard that got in a fight with somebody at a restaurant over something they overheard at the next table. You, anybody else ever seen that before? Yeah, it's ridiculous. Especially on Sunday nights. All the churches are getting out and they're all going to eat at, usually in Roanoke, it was Chili's. So all the churches go to Chili's after church and we're all talking. And you hear the Church of Christ arguing or not arguing, but talking really loudly because they know the Baptist church is right next to them about uh, how baptism saves and so forth. Things that they know are going to pick a fight. What is the purpose of that? You're going to convert them at Chili's? <laughs> like you're sitting at Chili's and all of a sudden that Baptist pastor is going to overhear you arguing about something that you're not even talking about just by talking loudly to his own people. And he's going to be like, stand up and be like, you know what, sir, you're right. Right here in this Chili's, I'm going to turn my church into a church of Christ. That's never going to happen. Folks, I mean, and I'll be, anybody who knows me really well knows that I love a good debate. Uh, it's, if it's something that's done respectfully and it's something that's done um, in the right attitude, in the right uh, spirit, then it's something I enjoy doing. But I will not debate with somebody um, unless it's somebody I know really well. The reason is there's no point to it. Nobody ever got converted to Christianity from a debate. It never, nobody ever got saved from an argument. Nobody ever got converted to another denomination or joined another church as a result of a debate. That never happened. You know why you debate? To let people know what you believe. You know how we do that here? I'm doing it right now. There's no reason for debates, especially in churches. It serves no purpose. So let your peace return unto you. Because you know what they need to hear more than your, uh, more than your beliefs, your theology on homosexuality, or more than your theology on abortion, or more than your theology on which 
version of the Bible is the most accurate. They need to hear your theology on the love of Christ. They need to hear your theology on, uh, on the free gift of salvation. On our equality of sin. You see, sin isn't something that makes me better than you. Sin is the great equalizer. It makes us all on the same level. I am just as terrible as the, the black people that live in, you know, further down the road than you or so forth. I'm just as terrible as uh, the, the, the women that some people treat horribly because they're women and they're, they're treated as lesser humans. I'm on the same playing field as a Democrat. I'm on the same playing field as a Republican because we're all the same. Sin is the great equalizer. It's not what makes me better. It's what makes me as bad as you. Right? That's the way it should be. But unfortunately, so many times, Christians are known for this right here. This look is the look of Christianity. Because there are too many people that can't keep their mouth shut about the wrong things and won't open their mouths about the right things. You get upset, you need to yell something, why don't you yell the gospel? I knew a girl, and, I, and she, she might kill me for telling this story, but I won't say her name. And uh, it's just because she's passionate, she regrets it to this day, and she's told me so. But she got into an argument about the Bible with one of her high school teachers and got so angry and so upset that she was standing on top of her desk throwing like pencils and stuff at him. She got so upset and so angry. Do you know who I'm talking about? Yes. Okay. She knows now she shouldn't have been that way about it. She was, you know, an emotional teenager at the time. She was arguing with an adult. Well, she was the one doing the, the throwing things, which is, I think, a toe over the line. But also she was the Christian, too, which is my point, is that we should let our peace return him to us. That's not going to do any good. You chucking pencils is not going to convert him to the Lord. Right? That pencil's not going to hit his brain in just the right spot where it triggers something. I almost got a couple of spit takes on that one. Good try harder. Maybe not. I don't want to kill somebody than choking on the coffee. But uh, the Lord is sending them out. He's sending them out with this attitude and this spirit. We don't have apostolic authority today. That was a temporary thing for a temporary time in the church's history. But what we do have today are ambassadors. That's what each and every one of us is. When you go out into the world, you represent what Jesus is supposed to be. So when people look at you, they see the face of Christianity. And they see the face of your church, your denomination. What you stand for, what you believe, you represent that as the face of it. So when you go out, how you behave determines how people think about your Lord. Let's be good ambassadors of the Lord. Let's be kind to people. Let's respect each other. They're not going to do that way back to you. So don't get shocked when they treat you disrespectfully and unkind. But that doesn't mean you get to stop and treat them the way they treated you. Jesus has called you to something higher, to something greater. <clears throat> we should treat people the way he treated people. Hey, if anybody was mistreated, it was Jesus. Anybody was ever abused and mocked and hurt, it was Jesus. If we're going to represent him. We have to rise above all of that. And behave the way he wants us to behave. So that is our lesson on why we believe what we believe about the apostles. Uh, next week, we're going to dive a little further into um, church doctrine. And then the, the next week after that will be Acts chapter 2. And then we're going to move on 
to why we believe what we believe about the end times. And I'm really looking forward to that. Oh, I'm sorry, not next week, yeah. Next week is Anniversary Sunday, and our first week playing our new game, Are You Smarter Than the Pastor? <clears throat> right, so this one is just over general Bible knowledge. So I would just brush up on your Bible reading this week. That is all I've got for you this morning. I want to thank you guys so much for being here. We'll be back. Um, 27. You did pretty good. Yeah, we'll be back up 11, maybe a couple minutes after for the morning service.